Why, hello and welcome. Welcome to the Peer Pressure Podcast. I am Diane, sometimes known as Diane Kamikaze, and I am your host. The reason why I do this podcast is because I like to say I am a champion of heavy music. I've always found my favorite songs since I was a young kid had riffs, hooks, were either metal, hardcore, hard rock, or punk, or something fairly aggressive in attitude and sound. And I am all about appreciating the people that keep that world going, whether they're musicians, webmasters, other podcasters, record label and festival owners. It's important to me to recognize what these people do in that realm of music. So I am here to bring them to you in a different context, more than a Wikipedia entry or a press release, a little more personal and a lot more fun. I'm a rocker for life, and I hope these episodes do make a difference. Send me feedback at diane at wfmu.org. And my Facebook page is Diane Kamikaze Farris, Rocker for Life. Like my page there, and I will keep everybody updated on podcast episodes in that space. Thanks so much for listening, and stay tuned. And my guest today is Martin Rev, who practically needs no introduction, member of Suicide for decades. We had this chat right after the Super Bowl, although it was aired April 5th before a show that he performed with uh, Wolf Eyes and Insect Arc at Elsewhere in Brooklyn. We talk a little bit about growing up in the New York art scene growing up in New York altogether, what he's creating new, and how he creates. Some wonderful words from Martin Rev. Stay tuned. My very special guest today is Martin Rev. Thank you for being with us today. You're welcome. You've got a show coming up in April at, at Elsewhere with Wolf Eyes and Insect Arc and a, and a number of people on that bill. Are you, is this a collaboration with Wolf Eyes? Uh, not yet, because I haven't actually even met Wolf Eyes uh, to date, but uh, there are a couple of uh, shows sharing the bill, if, if we can call that a collaboration, it is, but um, we'll be doing a couple of shows together that way. But no, we're all doing a, our uh, our own sets shared bill I, the way that it was written on a flyer that i saw i, w- I wasn't actually sure, sure. Not exactly clear right. yeah and um what can we expect from your upcoming set oh how do you describe what one does uh, sonically for better or worse uh it's just then you you can expect uh, my vj divino phone who does an incredible as far as i'm concerned brilliant uh, visual artist in many respects, uh, she'll be doing projections on my set, which is beautiful uh, in its in and of itself. It's very uh, provocative and interesting. And uh, I'll be just doing uh, what I do. I mean, I don't uh, I don't predict it to the you know anybody who's seen uh, I guess a show of mine anywhere in the last uh, few years. 
as an idea, but uh, material changes, ideas change. So it's a, and of course, uh, how do you describe what you're going to do musically? It's just uh, if I was that uh, eloquent, I wouldn't have to be a musician. I could just just have been a writer or sort of a wordsmith or a philosopher. Oh, well, I think that you are eloquent and do express yourself in, in incredible ways. Uh, thank you. To a, in a sense that's uh, up to what I probably need to, for my own taste, to, to express. I can't really express, uh, I mean, I could try, but what music does to me or what it consists of is always just an approximation. And I like the fact that I think other people uh, usually do, too, of the the element of surprise. So uh, you can expect uh, sound, uh, electronic-generated sound, for sure. So is Divine Enfant working with you specifically for this show? Yes, and we have been collaborating uh, that way for, uh, I would say, about a year now or a little more. Actually, she also did the uh, my set on the Barbican, which was the last suicide show. It was kind of a big, uh, or big, or kind of a suicide uh, special, which was solo sets of each of Alan and myself, and then a suicide set. Mm-hmm. And she did my set, which was her second outing with me uh, in terms of that collaboration. And uh, so, yes, it'll be specifically uh, something. We do that. I, you know, I try to involve her in almost uh, whatever show she can be involved in. She's a, she's a, she lives in France, and um, whenever possible. And this one seems to be possible. I've seen some of those video work, and she's got some beautiful, fluid movements that work so well with with your talent. It's yeah, I think yeah. so too. Yeah, yeah it's been longer than a year since Alan has passed, and and uh, my condolences. What's been the main impact on your writing since he's passed? Well, my writing, well, you might say, or my thinking, uh, writing for sure, is kind of a continuum of, of my own kind of growth uh, or lack of it um, that goes on for over the course of time. Uh, it, it, it's not really, I don't know, any finite or any concrete degree whether how it was affected by Alan being here or not being here certainly in a recent sense before or after he departed I mean it's something that seems to run fairly independently although my roots which of course are pre-suicide but what we did together certainly fed a, a focus of foundational ideas to me that um, that I you know can make use of I make use of or or, re, or by not making use of it consciously ad infinitum it seems but not uh, in any total complete sense in terms of that's all I make you know derive from so I wouldn't say uh, I can't really think how Alan's passing had just clearly changed the course I've been on anyway the last CD that came out came out soon after he passed, but of course, you know, that was a process that would have been happening for some time before. And like all of those works, they're all 
processes, processes, one might say, and they're like uh, they go on over time, and they at best complement your own process in terms of your understanding, experience, and growth as uh, the particular artist you are and as the person you are, and your taste. Uh, hopefully, uh, complementing that in terms of that medium. I think that's about uh, the closest to I could describe or not describe uh, the fact that I'm not uh, diminishing the value of Alan, of course, being in this world, in my life or not in my life, but in terms of my actual music, you know, I can't see a specific uh, change that way. When you started collaborating, did you, did Suicide set out to write songs or was it more like fooling around with sounds? It was a combination of uh, fooling around very intense, intensely. You might say with great intensity. If we were fooling around, it was uh, with a lot of uh, fire, you might say, that reflected how we were living or viewing our lives as artists when we met. We didn't start off with songs. Songs kind of evolved out of this, as I've said before, kind of often said, it was like starting with a block of stone, like with a sculptor. Hmm. Only we didn't even have the clear image that a sculptor sometimes has, usually, you know, cartoon, and he starts chipping away at that outline in his mind, or that he draws on the sculpture. We started out almost like with a, a total wall of sound, a very, you know, ecstatic kind of experience between uh, and kind of finding our own roles in terms of vocals, electronics. I started out playing drums initially with Suicide. And it just got kind of chiseled away as we, I mean, there were words to different sections, but I don't think anyone else could really discern in the first year or so what those sections were so easily. But we were totally involved, of course, in what we were doing. And eventually, through uh, stages and seeking to find something maybe closer, more clarified, that to bring it further into something new, too, because at some point, you, you know, you're always... You can do the, the wildest, newest thing in the world, but some, you got constantly looking to some point that's... Uh, becomes known, more known than unknown, and you keep going. And this, for us, it was like to keep going was to find actually something more chiseled out out of what we were doing. And when I brought in the drum machine, that had a big effect on doing that for us. And eventually, uh, songs emerged. So you were looking for your own level in experimentation. Yeah, I guess I already had it. I mean, I had a certain level. I was coming from... As a kid brought up on rock and roll, that was my music, and then I went through a, a period as a teenager very intently going through jazz, studying and attempting to master the styles and the history of jazz as an instrumentalist, which is, you know, no easy feat, and uh, however far I went, it was pretty far, but I got to the point where I was expressing it, went through the various stages of, of uh, discipline and I was in the avant-garde around the time I met Alan and then I was using electronic instruments in that total avant-garde which then was total free jazz but I was doing it electronically because 
mostly because there were very few places at that point you could even find an acoustic, say, keyboard when you went and did a show. So I was doing more and more things on borrowed uh, electronic organs and things, and that got me more into electronics. So it was just really a continuum, except we were adding uh, more and more. We were adding a kind of a visual, kind of a theater, because we knew we were heading into this rock and roll arena because it seemed that that was, the, at that time, the only really open territory frontier that hadn't yet been totally exhausted, uh, hadn't gone through its avant-garde, and it was wide open for almost anything. So we ventured into that, and of course part of that was performing, and what we wore and how we looked, which opened up a whole other dimension, and uh, also coming back or discovering our tastes that way and who we were that way, initially too. And the level was also... uh, Based on what we had to do as individual artists, we were already quite radical by that time. We had been living totally dedicated to the idea that that's what we were going to do, risk or no risk, for several years. And, you know, that's maybe part of the intensity also that was expressed. But in terms of songs and traditional ways of of playing uh, in that world, song-oriented world of rock and roll, that was not something that we just, you know, we just said, okay, we're just going to go right for for that. We're going to write songs like that. Alan was coming from an art background, totally, a very accomplished one already, not a musical background. And I did not hear what had already taken place or, or at that time in rock and roll as what I needed to do. So I just continued from where I was and through the stages which I was discovering, which was electronics, which I felt were was such an open, exciting, open frontier. And the possibilities were just uh, so vast and unexplored. And that was uh, my candy store. I was, you know, a kid in a candy store is always uh, the image I, I tend to come back to, which is the ideal place for any artist to find a... Uh, an area like that, and to carve songs out of there eventually. It sounds like you pulled a lot of things together to move forward. What was discovery, what was exciting for you within, like, couched in music? I think my process has always been one idea leads to a desire to explore that idea, and and to master it as far as I feel I desire to because that's what's going to yield the fruits of what it seems to be offering. And then through that idea or several ideas, other, other ones emerge. And some, when I say master, I mean some aspirations can take five years, ten years, and some can take a week mm-hmm. or three days. But that seems to be the process by which uh, maybe most or everyone works in the arts, I don't know. But I, So I was always kind of feeding on my aspirations and the, the kind of uh, attractiveness and maybe excitation of what 
those ideas could offer. The new, the freshness, the newness, the surprise of what they seem to offer me to discover and to add to whatever medium I was immersed in, maybe at the time, but uh, not in any other way than to add maybe something totally, you know, really new that was fresh for me and would be fresh for anyone else hearing it. Uh, that's always what was the hope. So it may be less conscious than, I mean, everything I would say one experiences musically, which means they, f they felt it. And listening to, to a record say that really goes deeper than just the surface understanding. That's like an experience. Mm -hmm. All those and everything one studies and thinks about and aspires to and one's own personal value judgment as far as art and hopefully life reflecting it, that all carries with you. So that's what you're carrying without realizing it, but the actual creation of music is, uh, besides the discipline maybe of the work involved in trying to master whatever your medium is, especially if you're playing an instrument as well, there's a lot of uh, ecstatic energy, motivation, and need, uh, obsessive need to, to be immersed in it for many like myself, because that's what made life meaningful and interesting, and, and life without it just seemed uh, unlivable. I mean, totally you know, kind mm. of absurd. You know, but that's why for some, uh, their art or what they do that way is, uh, is really a necessity. Do you have a recollection of a moment that was really like an aha when you were collaborating or writing or finding something that works? Thankfully, uh, I could say that they are so multiple that I could never, I could only think of the last one that happened yesterday. I mean, I'm working every day in, in one way, whether they end up being major or less or more, less major, uh, those kind of discoveries are fairly constant because that's what keeps you going in a way when they're not there it keeps me going when they're not there you're searching to shape what you're doing to at least have it be something that surprises you or that's different and in doing that sometimes just the difference is fine but it also many times uh, spells a possible outlook for other work, you know, following that like like a philosophy, like an idea that can apply to more works, not just that one. And that's usually what it what it is. And sometimes it's it's less, you know, it's more of a, an illusion at the time, or just more of a a very positive, exciting possibility, which gets fleshed out, you know, in the next several days or so. You know where it can go, or, or where it doesn't go, or how extensive it might be. Those moments are, uh, thankfully, uh, man. I couldn't even think of you know one. You know, fresh like I say, and the freshest one is uh, yesterday. I haven't done. I haven't started work yet today. So I'm just getting that you're creating and taking every single bit of whatever it is, and, and playing with it all. Well, play is, uh, is an important.
important word too, important concept. There's always uh, another way of shaping something. When we shape something that doesn't really satisfy us in a form that's, for me, it's usually something that I've heard before, either that I've done before, or that is too much like it's been done before. And it's not a, as much of a conscious thing, although it is, it's just that it doesn't interest me so much. So I search for uh, other forms, either by just deconstructing things, breaking things down, adding things. And then in that, you find uh, gems and surprises. If we were with you tonight when you go to work, what would we see? What's your basic gear? Oh, I just, I work with uh, tracks. And, um, you know, I work with uh, sound instruments, electronic, digitally. I record uh, tracks, whether they're vocals, percussion, instruments, rhythm, drums, pure electronic sounds. Everything that's pretty much uh, out there that, can be utilized, but I, you know, I don't, I don't utilize everything in the final analysis. So I might, you know, then it's like if you have an empty canvas and you, you just need, you know, you want to take about ten cans of paint and just open them up and throw them right on the canvas. It's beautiful, and you're so, uh, so alive, so ecstatic about the, all the possibilities when you first start something because you're going from a blank canvas to all these colors. And possibilities, which they represent, which they kind of represent to you. Mm-hmm. But coming back to that, of course, uh, is where you start to see. Well, this should, you know, this could be moved here. This could be moved here. This could be taken out here. This, you know, this doesn't work there. This, that's where like the detailed work comes in. Out of that, there are kind of ecstatic possibilities too. But they're not as the first stages of starting out. I think on a a blank page is always the most, uh, you're not expecting to finish, you know, to get that close to anything that's, uh, you could say, is done in any respect. So it's just all, like you say, play. It's like, uh, try this, try that, try this. Wow, that sounds, that sounds with this. You're not not editing, so to speak, down to such detail. And that's, uh, depending on what stage I might be on a certain canvas, and, you know, that it calls for, uh, as you say, a certain amount of analysis. <laughs> but the analysis is all ear. You know, I, I mean, I don't really, for me, it's just really follow, I'm just following my ears. Well, the ear is a kind of a organ that represents everything you are. In this case, you know, it could be the eye, it could be the ear, it's the mind. But it represents everything, your taste in the best sense, what you choose and it goes very 
goes back to everything you've learned again and experienced and also something very innately cellular or genetic, ancestral, we don't know. Why I choose to put two sounds in relation to themselves in this way and, and somebody else has the same two sounds and puts them another way. It's, it's instinctive, but the, and the instinct is also shaped also by everything you've come to feel has value in the world you're in, which is, in this case is sound. Like what seems to be the, the most, we said before, integritous place in a way for those two sounds to be, based on the sounds alone. Because you may have other considerations like will, how will they work in this market or will they sell this way? You can have all those considerations too. Basically just based on the relationship of two sounds in their pure you know, it takes into consideration all everything you've you've learned and everything you've always naturally felt. Is, you know, but uh, a lot of it is uh, not conscious at all. Although you're consciously seeing, well, no, my ear says no. That doesn't. This could be better. That could be lower. That could be louder. That could be shorter. That note could be longer. And you know, all those changes. I think, in many ways, uh, a track or an album for me or for many people is just a, a a compilation of decisions thoughts it's just a, a dossier you might say a file of all those x amount of thoughts that went into shaping something i'll put it here there take this out put that in all this little decisions big decisions and then when you when you finally you know when you say okay i can live with this being so-called finished you hand over uh, a file of, of decisions. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, that's what, that, that's what it is, decisions mm -hmm. and sound. And the more thought usually that goes into something, or the more thoughts make the better works of sometimes the ones that have taken the more, most thought or more care. And because of that, many times they're not realized or embraced for sure at that time also, but they tend to to hold their value, you know, like a, like something, uh, you know, like a certain metal or a gem or a stone that holds its value for some reason because they, they are imbued, they are inside, they are the solidity of all these thoughts and decisions based on a certain... Um, Aesthetic that's that's come about out of uh, something very uh, individual and meaningful to the to that individual, beyond just uh, what we all want to. Will anyone like this or can this sell? And can, I'm not I'm not denigrating whether those things are important, right. but you know they are as important as when we look in the mirror and we see, oh man, we. I don't look that great today, or my hair is here, or my complexion is here. But is that the whole picture, or is that the whole complexity of what we are? Of course not. Right, it's just an aspect. Yeah, and a fairly surface one. Although we can feel totally demolished that day because of something on our, on our outer appearance. Early on... Susan had the opportunity to open for some very large bands. The word is, is, is that there was, I don't know if you would call it negative energy or just a lot of people not into the band. 
what were those moments like? And then if they're, if it's a relationship, right, if you're there and there's people in an arena booing you, do you remember those moments? Can you recall that? And Very well. But I would say that there was only one band like that, and that was the Cars uh, that we opened up for. We, we didn't open up for many bands anyway, but certainly not on, on that level. Yeah. Um, so I remember the Cars shows very well. I mean, it, it was just... Uh, but we had been experiencing that kind of uh, feedback for almost, you know, our entire public performing career <laughs> up at that point. And uh, we had already played extended tour in Europe the first time, and my first time in Europe uh, in, in general uh, with reaction like that has kind of been documented every night, you know, like, and uh, riots and whatnot, so-called. Um, so that was kind of like a given. Of course, in, in smaller clubs, you, you know, you, you had less people, so you didn't have more like people walking out or a couple of people yelling, but not. With the cars, you know, you reached a, a kind of a very uh, pinnacle stage where you had you know, 15,000 people booing at once. As I've said before, it's an incredible sound. I mean, it's nothing like it because it's like 15,000 in a chorus. I wouldn't say necessarily in unison because nothing is totally in unison that way. But man, that's a dream in many respects to hear 15,000 voices uh, in unison saying anything. The reality, of course, of what they're feeling is a different story and how dangerous that can be if they <laughs> act on it. And um, those are great great moments in, this, in, the, in, the, in the kind of fact that you're just doing what, you know, it's, it's an energy. Yes, but it doesn't, you know, at that point, it's not stopping you. You just continue in the uh, total derision, you might say, of what's going on around you. Anger. Or... But of course, like I say, uh, with suicide was concerned, we were pretty well prepared. I think I'm referring to two civic centers we played with the cars, and then we played uh, Universal Amphitheater in uh, L.A., um, about a year or so before that, if I remember. And uh, that's 5,000. So and yeah, they went they went crazy. I remember Universal Amphitheater was in the daytime. It was beautiful, sunny L.A. afternoon. <laughs> An outdoor theater, you know. The amphitheater is uh, out in the desert. And uh, oh, what could be, you know, less idyllic than that? I mean, you're in the sun, you're out in the desert, and... You get up there and the sound, it's right there where you want it and you're just sending it out and it's great. And then everybody starts to, uh, not everybody, but maybe a large percentage of people start booing, maybe taking off the, throwing a boot here or there. And uh, I usually walk off feeling very good after that. Oh, good. I, I, would, I would like to feel... I would love, always you want to be, you know, you don't want to necessarily uh, be despised or hated or whatever they were feeling at that point. You know, it's not what I look to, to find. Like, you don't look to find that in life, maybe. At least I don't. But but the um, the energy and the strength of, uh, cause I, you know, you know when you're, when you're doing what's 
good to you, you know, when you're doing what's right for you and you've been doing it all your life and you and you just keep doing it into the the storm, so to speak. Yes. Yes. You know, just playing into it. And it creates a it certainly aggravates the energy in a way that even sharpens it. It's almost like it's an endless loop. It's like you could create that atmosphere and keep it going and it's as if it's like a swarm of insects. Um, and that's, but to be able to impact people. So like the negative part doesn't really matter. It's more about that that many people were vocal at once, which is, is really remarkable as, as long as you're okay with standing there taking it in. The illusion of theater is often talked about by people in, in, uh, in the domain of theater and the uh, great uh, sages of theater. Stanislavski has mentioned that and other great acting teachers or whatever. But theater itself. But the stage is, it's an illusion. It's an artifact, too, the way art is in general an artifact. You could be in front of 5,000 or 15,000 people by yourself or with two people. And we were concerned, you know, the way we performed, Alan would usually get off uh, when he was finished, a little before, like on the last track, or we decided that to be, or it just got decided that way, and I would follow him at some point. I wouldn't just get off at the same time. So um, Now, the illusion is that you can stand in front of 5,000 people or 15,000 who are despising you and yelling for your who knows what you know, at that point, <laughs> and they're very close to you. They're not far, and there's maybe a, if you're lucky, there's a couple of security guards around. But and you just play, keep playing into them as if you, if it, if they come after you, you've got the you've got the power. You can take them on. Now a lot of that is because also one thing you do have is the sound, and the sound is like has a has a has a power. But realistically, no. If they all got down off their seats and, and started charging the, the stage. You know. Yes, you need to leave. You could be if you could find an exit. Yeah, otherwise you'd be like a, a bunch of flying feathers in a, in a few minutes. You know, <laughs> like a bird that's you know just totally <laughs> decimated. <laughs> but you don't feel that if you're out in the street. You sure feel it. If you walk down, if you turn a corner, and not just a few thousand or a couple of hundred or ten people are yelling for your uh, your hide, so to speak. Man, you try to get out of there fast. Yes. So the theater, you know, the theater causes an illusion, but the theater causes an illusion for the audience, too. Why they even take that so seriously to be so threatened? A lot of it happens when you open up for bands, too. And, you know, that's a right. very common thing because an audience really wants to see who they came to see, and they love coming down and giving a, a real raising hell-raising to whoever opens up unless you really play it a certain way that they accept and, and like. I mean, you know, last night after the Super Bowl, what could happen, I think it was in Philadelphia, fans who yes. won and had a great time, you know, what do they need to go out and start destroying and rioting for? Except that they're totally out of their wits with the energy that it created and what to do with that. And that was their expression. Yeah, because ultimately something about it is also not fulfilling enough. 
and it, but the energy of the game and getting so and whatever sometimes you you know people love to drink and watch a game rock is kind of like that too i mean rock is an incredible energy too so like that so it drives the adrenaline and you know if you're doing something that's not in the in the uh, framework of what people know usually they feel affronted that's all part of the all part of the game you don't you don't predict or decide those things you just do what you do and deal with however it's reacted to yes when you were playing gigs early on in new york what was an early suicide show was it really more like a like a venue in a gig or more of a theatrical performance um no but well it was kind of in between it was our earliest shows were done in art galleries because we you know there were very few venues at that time and it was harder to get into venues so we started in okay harris which was ivan Karp's gallery because that's where alan actually was uh, had a, his first show his first known show we had a ivan gave him a room and a, and a group show in the back we went to places we knew actually had one at the village vanguard because i had known that place from walking in and getting in for free for many years before that so i knew the owner max gordon uh we started you know so we did have a couple of venues went to Ngano's, you know which is actually a few months before they were going to close because they were known that was a 60s major smaller club in the 60s well not a smaller club but a club and uh so wherever we could go to try to get a show, but the first couple were in galleries because that was kind of a scene Alan was more familiar with, too, and we were rehearsing down in the space, which was the Museum of Living Artists, and we were kind of in that world. It was like pre, before Soho got so fashionable and uh, populated and known mm-hmm. that way. You know, there was still a lot of uh, opportunities for people like us to have a sp- find a space and do something, so... That's so we kind of, you know, we didn't do any real theaters, uh, but it certainly was probably viewed by some as theatrical. Mm-hmm. The ones who were, you know, less offended by it or affronted. Some people got us right away. I mean, they were into us right away, especially in that milieu, that more art-oriented milieu, those uh, environments. At the time, what would you say that your view of what was going on in New York in the art and music world was? Well, I can only relate to it. I was a pretty young guy at the time. I mean, of course, that's relative young in terms of years. Uh, the art world was that I was coming into was already an established world of artists, much older already you know spent years establishing themselves early soho again but ivan Karp, you know papa uh post pop art pop art and, and what came after followed in its in its wake um so all of that was like the establishment i was like you know an uh a rebel coming out of the streets you know it was like the next kind of a next wave or next couple of waves down of what was not yet 
accepted or known or with a different an energy that was not really part of their energy to that extent and and also I was still developing I mean as I always am but that was also there too so at that point I had something obviously that was uh, quite developed on a certain level but it had the energy of still breaking ground and needing to break ground at every moment mm-hmm. almost like what it has now <laughs> seems so the art world was uh, it's like an, it was like the establishment it was like a strange place because it was something that I knew I didn't belong in because I hadn't yet paid you know I hadn't been accepted and wasn't yet going to be accepted uh, and then certainly by what I did and Alan was just starting to get because uh, of Ivan because of Ivan Karp because he was such a maverick uh, I gave him a window a small window but Alan was still a, a radical and a an outsider in that world and uh and it was just, uh, and the music world was the same, even more, because the music world was still an extension of all the stuff that happened in the 60s and early 70s. And now you had groups that, you know, were making, the ones you knew of already were quite successful and making major records on major tours and getting major budgets, and that's the world we came into. That's the world any group comes in. You know, when they come in, they come in off, off of from nowhere and they try to carve out a place uh, where they can keep doing what they do and get enough sustenance to do that totally by what they do. And um, depending on how radical or how different they are or how provocative they are, you know, uh, depending on how long it takes or what the reaction is going to be or whether they can break through enough to find that place for themselves. And it's all, you know, different uh, equation for everyone based on the content, I think, ultimately, of what you do. And the timing, the times in which you come out. Yeah, and where you are in your own development. Yeah. Yeah, and what you're, what you're saying, in a way, because what you're saying is not always verbal in this sense, but it's um, how much you're willing to play or compromise or play the, a certain... How much part of that social structure you really feel part of that you're coming into, and whether you're really embracing it uh, in many, you know, in different degrees, or if you're commenting on it, or if you're rebelling against it, uh, if you're attacking it, if you, you know, if, if, the, if all those things are perceived through the what you do and. Anything that seems to be a possible threat to the status quo is not going to be, especially to the business end of it. Right. So, you know, whatever's selling at that time, whether it's in music or art, is a vested interest. Excuse me. And you can come in with the greatest new innovation, but that's also a threat. Because that means to anyone who's, you know, who's, has the vested interest, who's, who's living is being made on what's selling them, of course, is right. uh, because now it all has to be revamped, and what you do with what you have, if, if you let this through, what happens to your investment you know, previously? So it's, um, 
it's always the attempt to slow down or block anything new. And it's always been like that. The impression is, you know, the same thing as as accessible as they seem when you look at them. They were considered the total barbarians at the time and totally castigated. So, they were coming in on what was uh, half it was already established. So then for you, since you've been creating and are a known entity for, for decades now, um, would you say that that risk, that the, the rebel feeling has to come more from you creating because you're not necessarily part of the establishment, but you're an established artist? So there's no, like when you were talking about, you know, right. sort of showing up on the scene um, and Alan with his first show and it was like everybody's kind of feeling each other out and all these new creatives are there doing their thing. You've been there, you're in New York for decades right. and and you're still creating, you've never been mainstream, but right. people do know who you are. So there's a certain audience, but do you feel that like the rebelliousness now is more just in your creation because people know you and there may be a certain expectation of how your shows go or the kind of art or music that you'll be putting out? Well, I think actually there's very little component of rebelliousness, conscious rebelliousness. Um, I think that's maybe just all part of my makeup or seems to come out as part of my makeup and may not be there as much as the fact that I search for ecstasy and surprise in the world of sound, and I search for joy, and that is where the energy comes from, so that never changes. It's not a matter of, it's not a matter of being, being accepted or not being accepted or what, on whatever level doesn't change the need to experience that on every level. It's like to live. You, you wake up, you, you, you drag yourself, you might say, as Michael Jackson said, you get out of bed <laughs> in whatever way you feel. And it may have been nice the night before that somebody said they really like you or, you know, you're accepted or depending on how much you've been accepted the night before, it depends on how long that may last. It may last till the morning. It may last for two days at the most, something like that. But that, that what's going to drive you or make that, make you feel like living that day, living in the best sense, or living in a way that's positive, joyous, finding something that makes it have sense, uh, it's not going to be whether you know because that's going to that's going to evaporate. It's going to wear off very fast. So, I'm like just really in, in many ways just trying to entertain myself. <laughs> you know, and that's what, you know I'm like I'm like a DJ that plays for myself. I love playing for others, and I love people dig what I do too. I, I you know I dig that, of course. But. That's like, you know, that's the cherry on the, on, the, on the top of the cake if it happens. You know, if it's there, if it's not, the cake is still, you know, if I'm digging it, you know, I got to just move my, you know, I need to move. It's like I need to feel the movement. I need to feel what that feels like for me. And it comes out sometimes, I guess, as being, 
because whatever my individual makeup is or the intensity of it for me, and that maybe goes back to things certainly I'm not conscious of or whatever my genetic, or again, all these ephemeral possibilities are, makes it come out in a way that can sound very rebellious. Because, you know, yeah, it's probably all in there is part of a way I look at life or the outer world, you know, in a sense, too, or how much at home I, I, you know, I feel innately in so-called society or in the, you know, how uncritical I might be underneath or how much I really fit, feel that I fit, mm-hmm. how much of a stranger I really feel underneath. All those things, you know, you can become more aware of in time. The major thing is that you're just, uh, you're in love. You know, it's all about, it's just love. It's mm-hmm. all it is. You know, it's like falling in love with someone that just really knocks you out. I mean, it's really so, you know, and you're not going to stop at anything to be with them and any resistance or any one saying, no, you can't be with that person because you just, you know, they're just so fantastic to something in you. And that feeling has an energy that is not rebellion or anything else it can come into into conflict with society at large because society tends to maybe not go that far with you on it always but but it's that's all it is it's uh, and, and when you feel it you want to come back to it and i may have used the word rebel in a way that was not as as clear as i could have uh, no that's okay yeah. but uh, you know I, yeah there is rebellion in there because, you know, but I, I think a lot of that is maybe just uh, Well, it's a lust for life. Yeah. That's what that, yeah. and, and that's... It's aesthetic rebellion, too. It's like, no, I don't want to... You're rebelling also aesthetically. No, that, this is fresh. That's not fresh. Wow, this is, like, cool. That I've heard before. So that's a rebellion in a sense, too. And then underneath, yeah, there's all the natural, unnatural feelings, maybe, of I don't like what's happening. You know, I've never felt totally one with this world at large. So sure, that's in there too. That's uh, to say how much that plays into the, you know, to translate into notes or the sound or the... I'm sure Freud and those guys could do it because they can analyze everything. You know, can <laughs> <laughs> but um, it gets translated into um, another medium. That's uh, an expression of that also essentially of using the materials of that medium and why do you do it because they just they do something to you i remember talking about this once before that it kind of blew my mind how a three-year-old kid i forget who it was it was an actor we all know of say a very uh, fine actor who hey, how did you get into theater well he went into uh maybe an opera singer his mother took him to a play when he was maybe five years old right and he was sitting there, and he watched it, and he went into a whole credible, exciting trance on this. And he said, that is so, I've got to do that. That is like, wow. You know, it's just like the way it hit him. <laughs> <laughs> and um, now 99% of all the other kids his age that went to the theater, the mom took it to the theater, didn't have that reaction. Oh, they had a nice time. They saw the play. They told their friends you know, about it. But they didn't walk out of there saying, my God, that was so incredible. I have to do that. That's what he was saying. You know, it was like his first experience of the theater. Yes. So why did it affect him that way and not affect them that way? 
they were affected maybe by other things, for sure, hopefully, but not that. And um, but that's a study for uh, for other people probably to make because. Uh, well, and it's the state of the world and the individual. Yeah, it's something innate. You know, it's a. Uh, I mean, why did Mozart come out being able to just rattle off things? As a, you know, there's so many prodigies, there's so many prodigies that we never hear of once they're over a certain age because they don't necessarily create anything that relevant either. And also, society's not interested in when the novelty wears off. But we could say where many of them is because they come from a family where that gene is there, too, and it's been developed. His father was a musician, and the others, you know, so something of that. But somehow, in that one individual, it just uh, culminates in a very, very special chemical reaction that is so acute and so clear, and that also is something that they attach to that makes them feel so uh, excited about, that they love, you know, this sounds what they represent it's all you know it's all like colors um, it's all abstract but it's not abstract like when you're when you close your eyes and you see all these to you such incredibly beautiful colors or hear such beautiful sounds and most people can walk away from that at some point you know they listen to the records they like they, they love them and it's fine they don't have to become musicians or they don't have to you know throw their lives off, you know, close, off the edge. <laughs> and some have no choice. Some just say, wow, that is, I got to be there. I got to do that. That's how close I got to be to that. And drive is a wonderful thing. Yeah. Yeah, right. Motivation, drive, yeah, exactly. Well, thank you. Very um, much. You're welcome. And you're very thoughtful. Good, and, um, Good to know. <laughs> You've influenced so many, not even just bands, like genres, and I think a, a way of being in a, not a conscious approach, but just a the creativity that everybody in modern music needs. Well, I've, thankfully, I've been influenced by others before me that were that way as well. And not that I wouldn't have been that way otherwise, because it seems that some are just are and some are, and I've come to realize uh, but I've had great models and great influences out of the, the great artists that were in my environment growing up that I didn't necessarily know personally, for the most part. But uh, their values also were very clear and very strong. So that was those were, in a way, guided a path that uh, was more clear for me. There's so many. They exist uh, in rock and roll. They exist in classical music. They exist in jazz, certainly. Because jazz, most of them were alive when I was growing up. And uh, so basically in all American music there, they exist, whether it's their music itself, which imparts that to me out of its clarity and greatness and innovation, and sometimes uh, their words and their lives. But yeah, you know, it could be uh, a lot of people, thankfully. And you are certainly a, a member of those ranks. The validity of what I am is, in that sense, is what uh, what I hear today and uh, and what I hear tomorrow on my canvases. Not even it doesn't validate what I am, but that's what the rest is all really for some future 
analysis or whatnot. I mean, everything is either forgotten totally at some point, or if it's not, who knows? Or you, <laughs> you know, those ephemeral things that yes. can't really be concerned with on a daily level. And I really appreciate you keeping bringing the point back to joy and surprise and yeah you know wonderment and yeah exactly. and discovery yeah because they're yeah. so basic and and so not present a lot of times yeah in the world that we live in now possibilities is so why close those doors with such narrow with such you know views based on our one viewed human existence sometimes i mean just keep them open just that's what keeps things uh, interesting because otherwise if you know everything already and you know you can judge everything and everybody and you know it's a, i mean it's so it's so far from the truth because the truth always exists in something all those other possibilities that we don't know well thank you sir okay you're welcome very well <laughs> And that concludes another podcast episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. More on the way. Thanks to Liz Berg for handling the in-house podcast duties here at WFMU. I am Diane Kamikaze. Check my Twitter and my Instagram. Handle is one word, Diane Kamikaze. Kamikaze ends with an E. On Facebook, you can find me as Diane Kamikaze, Farris, rocker for life and making a difference. Yes. My Facebook page has 10 words in it. My regular show is on Thursdays from noon to 3 p.m. for an expanded version with lots and lots of music, wisecracks, and fun stuff. The full link to my uh, index of shows and podcasts is can be found on wfmu.org slash playlists slash dk. Those are, that's a capital D and a capital K. I'm going to be working on encore presentations, and I've got years of old interviews and podcasts. So if there's something that you'd like to see reposted that you missed, please get in touch. Send me email, diane at wfmu.org, and be sure to subscribe to the show. And if you like it, please rate it and review it. Wow. WFMU. Peer pressure. Thank you. See you next time.